0: Good evening, everyone. All right.
1: Daniel chapter 11.
0: We're entering into uh, an area in, in this particular chapter that is going to be speaking directly about the coming Antichrist. And um, what's interesting is that um, there is a lot of description about him here in chapter 11. And we can't just run through it uh, quickly or uh, just in passing we we have to be very careful about what we're identifying here so let's look at verse 36 this evening verse 36 because between verse 35 and verse 36 there is this tremendous passage of time we had been looking historically at the nations of Persia and Greece and after Alexander the four generals that had taken over the kingdom of Greece and spread eastward uh, to have uh, this dominion one king of course the Seleucid dynasty in the north of uh, above Israel and to the south of Israel was the Ptolemy Empire, which was of, uh, in Egypt. Historically, we—I we, mean—you can you can go through a history book and, and the Bible, and it's all. Uh, the only difference is the Bible uh, gives us the record of God giving this prophecy to uh, Daniel hundreds of years before it happened. But yet, the accuracy is, is, is very clear which, of course, makes the world, as we talked about before, makes the world say, well, it couldn't have happened. That, you know, he must have written it later then. Uh, but we, we believe that the Lord gave it to Daniel before it happened, and Jesus confirms that when he quotes from the book of Daniel and says, as, as Daniel writes about the abomination of desolation, which, of course, began with Antiochus, who he laughs, uh, left with in this passage, being that one king that we see uh, gave so much trouble to the Jews uh, in that intertestamental period uh, about 200 years or somewhere before 200 years uh, before the birth of of Christ on the earth. So there is this major jump of time. So let's look at verse 36, maybe. We might look at it. Pretty soon we'll look at it. I I suppose we have to wait because... Are we there? It's coming. I think we're there. Verse 36. It's a long verse, so I've got it split up in two here. And the king, it says, shall do according to his will. Now, remember that there's this jump, and I'll explain that in a moment. And the king shall do according to his will, and he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak marvelous things against the God of gods. And let me just tell you right now, I know you probably may have the New King James that says blasphemous things and, and other translations that may uh, say that. So the word marvelous is a King James word, but it's, it's something to marvel at. In other words, that, that this guy is saying all these words, and yet the, the, um, the, the understanding of the word is that it's speaking blasphemous things. So he shall speak blasphemous or marvelous things against the God of gods, and shall prosper till the indignation or the wrath, which will be actually, the indignation is the seven year period of tribulation, and shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished for for that for that, that is determined shall be done. Whenever you have two that's together, it's hard to say. For that that is determined shall be done. Okay. So, from one verse to the next, the prophecy foreseeing the history of certain nations from our perspective. And I I say that from our perspective because, again, we are looking back at history, but Daniel gave it to us before history. So, from one verse to the next, the prophecy foreseeing the history of certain nations, from our perspective, now leaps over centuries. Leaps over centuries from uh, leaving the the dreaded Antiochus Epiphanes to his own destiny in the providence of God, which the prophecy ignores, by the way. It doesn't tell us what happens to him. We already know that from history. But the prophecy immediately focuses on the still future history of the one that we call Antichrist. Now, to prepare us for this leap into time, we have this statement in verse 35. By the way, let me go back to this picture because I had it to put up there in between, and the reason I chose this, by the, way, I, I think I, I think it's a second, day, a seventh day Adventist thing, but, but, I only got it because of this one thing. If you look at the very bottom where it talks about the fix, the feet mixed with iron and clay, there's a big question mark. That's what I want you to see, the question mark, because if you go through all of these studies on, on. Uh, the various metals from the gold down to the, the clay mixed with iron in the feet. Uh, there's a lot of variations. Most of them are pretty clear where the, the head is of gold, the chest and arms are of silver. Uh, speaking of Medo-Persia, Greece being the belly and thighs of bronze, and Rome, the legs of iron. But the feet mixed with iron and clay, I think that's probably the, the best description is that there's a question mark there. Now, we have a lot of great ideas that we're going to be talking about, later, and we talked about actually in chapter 2 when we were in this particular place, but I, I, I just brought it up because of that question mark, and you'll see why in a moment. So anyway, verse 35 says, and some of them uh, of understanding shall fall to try them and to purge and to make them white even to the time of the end. Now, again, that was speaking of all of the persecution that was coming upon the Jewish people because all of that was actually part of their, of, of their chastisement uh, for all the things that they had done against, uh, against their God. But at the same time, notice it says even to the time of the end. Now that's the clue that shoots us across the centuries. Until the time of the end. And that's not speaking of any time immediately after 168 uh, A, uh, B.C. When, when the Romans began to you know, uh, make their move on, on the empires of the world. And then it says, because it is yet for a time appointed. So that again is another clue, that we're looking at a time future, alright? I'm not trying to dance here or anything, i just trying to be a little bit more descriptive here. So the key to these nations mentioned in the pro- in this uh, prophecy of chapter 11 has to do with their past and their future relations to the nation of Israel. There is no doubt about this. We've talked about it many times. Everything has to do with these nations' relationships or relationship to Israel. No question about it. Daniel, your people, your city. Very clear in the scripture here. Now, for so many years, within the last 50 years for sure of our time, much of prophetic study about the Antichrist and the nations focused so much on the revived Roman Empire and its composition in Daniel's visions. So if you go back to the early, late 60s, early 70s where prophecy was, it was becoming, you know, there was a lot of interest in it. People were writing like Hal Lindsey, you know, the late great Planet Earth and all these other books that, that were kind of the, you know, the, the, the initial books that, that were leading everybody to looking at the last days. But, but most of the time, they, they came to this thinking that, that when there was going to be this revival of an empire, it was going to be the revival of a Western Roman Empire. Because all there was in the Middle East was Israel and a lot of dirt. You know, the the, the, the desert. And, and, and certainly there were Arab armies and there were Arabs who were, an, uh, you know, anti-Israel and they wanted to get rid of Israel. They've been wanting to get rid of Israel since its modern inception in 1948. You know, that, that, that's no... You know, but, but it, just, it just seems like they were just not together, you know. They were doing it from all different angles and stuff. So there didn't seem to be something that tied them all together. There was, though, a religion in the, in, 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 and it was kind of in the background in people's minds, but they focused on Europe because there was something that kept telling them, you know, this thing about ten nations, ten toes, ten this, ten horns, ten everything, you know. So that, that was where the focus was. But let's go back to Daniel chapter 2. This is very important for us to understand. Daniel chapter 2 and looking at what was seen in the vision that was given by God uh, to Nebuchadnezzar, so that Daniel could interpret it. Now, in verse 31 it says of Daniel 2, it says, Thou, O king, sawest. And Daniel is telling him, This is what you saw in your vision. And behold, a great image. This great image, whose brightness was excellent, stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible. In other words, it was, it was, it was massive, and it was, it was ominous in a sense. Uh, this image's head was of fine gold, his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass, his legs of iron, notice this, his legs of iron, his feet part of iron and part of clay. Two more verses. Thou sawest till uh, that a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay, and break them to pieces. The stone, of course, being, you know, the kingdom of God and and of Christ and all. And and we talked about that back then. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver and the gold broken to pieces together and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Of course, the kingdom again, the kingdom of our Lord and of his God. Now, go over to chapter 7, if you will, because in chapter 7 is the, sec- the other uh, vision uh, that was now uh, looking at actually uh, animals or beasts. But we're just going to look at verses 7 and 8. It says, After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth. It devoured and brake in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it and it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it and it had ten horns. That's the focus that I wanted you to see. That it had ten horns. Okay. I was going back over here to the other image. Okay. Alright. And then verse 8. I considered the horns and behold there came up Among them another little horn, before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. Well, this is who we're talking about tonight. Uh, This one who has a big mouth and speaks great things. So, back then, when we were going through all of this in the early 70s, we would be encouraged in those days to focus on the legs of iron. Who's the, who are the, who's the legs of iron? That's Rome, isn't it? Or the Roman Empire that defeated the Greeks. So we would focus on, on the legs of iron, the Roman Empire, but especially we would focus on the feet of iron and clay, which had, of course, ten toes. Ah, the number ten. So we thought, well, here's, here's where we are going to see the beginnings of some kind of a, of a confederacy of nations, of ten nations, that are, that's going to make up this revived Roman Empire, Uh, and and we'd be told it had to represent a ten-nation confederacy, and if it was from a revived Roman Empire, then it had to be ten nations then from Europe, because, of course, Rome is in Europe. And then, of course, they would add, by the way, also the Vatican is in Europe, and there's a lot of other connections to that, uh, as far as uh, that goes. Uh, So it had to be ten nations from Europe. And uh, once the European Common Market uh, was formed, and and then they called it something else and then they called it the european uh, economic community and then they just call it now the european union but after all of these names were given we we'd have then the antichrist's 10 nations formed you know if we if we if we just could see that happening and then all of a sudden they began to form as as a confederacy of sorts and then there was a few and then there was 10 and then there was 11 And then there was 12. And I'm not going to go through the whole list, but there's 28 now. 28 toes. Anybody seen 28 toes in the Bible anywhere? Okay, y'all are like... Okay. Oops. 28. Back to the drawing board. But here's another problem, and I want you to consider. Again, go back to the legs. How many legs? Two. I had to check. Two legs. Two legs. East and west, right? East and west. We're talking about the Roman Empire. We're talking about east and west. Ten toes. How many on each foot? Five. How many of you here tonight have all 10 toes on one foot? Anybody? Some some are close. Some are close. All right, not not too close. No, it's five on each foot, right? So now we have another problem. Not all 10 toes are on one foot. And so that theory has to be blown out of the water. Because we have two legs, east and west. And they're very significant. And they weren't that significant then, but they are now. Why? Because if we look at uh, 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 the Roman Empire, you realize that it spread to the east, and much of—and and we've talked about this in, in, our, in our study of the Book of Revelation, and we talked about it earlier on—that much of this power now has spread to the east. And who was in the east at the time? All the nations that would be made up of, of the, the Syrians and the Assyrians and the Babylonians and, the, uh, you, and you name it. I mean, every, everyone that's actually mentioned in the Bible already are already there. Not to mention, as I've already proposed as an alternative viewpoint based on current events involving Islam and its many tentacles, but consider that Al-Qaeda, ISIS, Hamas, Hezbollah, etc. These are what has arisen over the last 20 or so years. In, a, in, a, in, a, in greater detail. And for some reason, Islam was not considered that much of a threat prophetically 40 years ago. Although, that at times... They were men- It was mentioned, but there are very few commentators, Bible commentators, that you, you actually could find them on, you, you can count them on one hand sometimes, uh, going back, let's say, to the 17th, 18th century, of good Bible commentators that would actually mention the rise of Mohammedism as they called it then. But then after that, nobody really mentioned a whole lot about it. So, as for the beast with ten horns... In chapter seven. While the focus is to be on the little horn that came up from the ten, and it tells us that it uprooted three of the horns, or will uproot three of the horns, as we shall see shortly in our study, not so much tonight, but pretty soon. It does come out it does come up out of the ten horns. It does come up out of the ten horns. So we will look at that in light of Antichrist's origin. But if there is a focus on anything in these passages, it is, in, it is on the character of the Antichrist. The character of the Antichrist. This king, as he is called. So it is no coincidence then, that he follows the crude example of Antiochus Epiphanes, or in Antiochus Epiphanes. So, this is not a recent idea, by the way, regarding these verses referring to Antichrist. It's not a recent idea. Over 1,500 years ago, the 5th century theologian Jerome wrote this, and I quote, he said, Those of our persuasion believe all these things are spoken prophetically of the Antichrist who is to arrive at the end time. Antiochus is to be regarded as a type of the Antichrist and those things which happened to him in a preliminary way are to be completely fulfilled in the case of Antichrist. So what Jerome was saying was that Antiochus serves as a a type of the Antichrist but he's not the Antichrist. We're going to jump to a time when there will be a person that he is a type of, that he is a forerunner of, But this person is entirely different. He will be his own person. He will be his own uh, entity. So this is what we're going to deal with first and foremost. And the reason is that when you consider the character of Antichrist, where would it come from? Where would that character come from if it doesn't come from the serpent himself from the garden in Genesis chapter 3? And so the first and foremost characteristic of Antichrist is pride. And we're going to see three things in in this one verse of Scripture tonight. We're going to see three things that are tied into the pride of the Antichrist. First of all, pride. The king shall do according to his will. That is in our text, in verse 36. It says in the king, verse 36, notice, it says, And the king shall do according... To his will. And he goes on to say, And he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak marvelous things against the god of gods and shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished for that that is determined shall be done. Now, while there are a number of things that distinguish the Antichrist from Antiochus Epiphanes or Epiphanes, there are certain similarities that stand out to indicate the relevance of the typology. To indicate the the importance of the typology from Antiochus to the Antichrist. One thing for sure is the statement given of Antiochus in verse 21. So just in the same chapter, go to verse 21 and look at what it says. Oh, I didn't finish that part. And shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished, for that that is determined shall be done. Okay, verse 21. And in his estate shall stand up a vile person. Now, this again, this is where the the focus on Antiochus begins. A vile person stands up to whom they shall not give the honor of the kingdom, which means uh, Antiochus was not in line to receive the uh, inheritance or to receive the kingdom. Uh, And then it says, but he shall come in peaceably, and obtain the kingdom by flatteries or by intrigue. So certainly, or or conspiracy as it were, so certainly a person who wants only to do according to his own will, from the standpoint, let's say, of a world leader, a person who only wants to do, or who wants only to do his own will could be considered detestable, could be considered despised and contemptible. All of these are apt synonyms, ...of the word vile. Vile means to be detestable, to be despicable, to be contemptible. But what is more detestable... ...than a person who arises as a man of peace... ...offering answers to the world's problems... ...yet proving to be wicked, to be selfish, and to be evil... ...seeking and doing only what he wills and desires totally focused upon his own personal ambition and considering no one else. What is more detestable than that in a person? Now, we don't have any world leaders like that today, do we? Or do we? I think, well, we're going to reserve our opinions, but this is the way it's been down through the ages. And it's no different today. Now this despicable person we're talking about will become an embodiment of all that can be considered tyrannical. Now back on July the 4th, I was talking about our freedoms that we have in this country that were to be freedoms from tyranny. Freedoms from tyranny. Not freedom to do whatever we want to do. That's not freedom, because whatever we want to do may infringe on the freedoms of others. So we're having to deal with a a moral foundation for freedom, but the biggest enemy to true freedom is tyranny. Oppressive, dictatorial, totalitarian, and extremely cruel uh, tyranny. Especially toward arch enemies that is what this person was and is, will be I should say was in the sense that we're being told that this is what uh, this person is going to be doing but it is a person from the future a person who is, twor- who is especially oppressive, tyrannical dictatorial and cruel toward his arch enemies, a Jewish people as was Antiochus and his desire of course will be his one only true desire will be to exterminate them and to wipe them off the face of the earth. Now, does that language seem to crop up at times in our own view of the, of the history of, 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 of man? Well, we could just look at the history of the scriptures to find out that the enemy has done everything he can to wipe out the Jewish people. Even before the Jewish people were called the Jewish people. The killing of Abel by his brother Cain. Later on, of course, then of course came came Seth. But then what else would take place all down through the ages? And the enemy doing all he could to keep that seed of the woman from Genesis three fifteen from coming to this earth to take care of the enemy. Because that prophecy in in Genesis three fifteen was directed especially toward the serpent. Who had caused Adam and Eve to sin. It caused them to fall. Brought them death. Brought them sin. Brought death to this whole creation in, of, this, of this earth. And really of the, of, of, the, uh, of the universe. Then you would read about people like Haman in, in the book of Esther. Who wanted to wipe out the Jewish people. And you will go down through history and, and, and see that many times that, uh, that, that there, were always, there were always people, groups of people or nations that, that uh, wanted to do the same thing until we got to 1933 and the establishment of, of Adolf Hitler as the Chancellor of Germany. And eventually as he took over as the Fuhrer, the leader of, 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 of Germany, Nazi Germany at the time, they had one thing called the final solution. What was the final solution all about? It was about exterminating the Jews completely. All of these were types of of antichrist, but they weren't the antichrist. They were pretty bad. The antichrist will be worse. That's the idea here. So, as Antiochus did not inherit the throne but seized it, so does this antichrist seize power through deception and conspiracy peaceably, yet plotting politically. Let's remember these passages. I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Turn to Revelation 6, verses 1 and 2. It says, and I saw, and, and by the way, these are the, the, this chapter is the opening of the, of the seals. They're, they're the judgments, the seal judgments, the um, uh, trumpet judgments, and the bowl judgments. And so the so seals judgments are the first judgments open. And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. Now, this is a, 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 an apt description of the Antichrist, who is... On a white horse, and, and I want to explain something about that in a moment, but he's on a white horse, he sits on him, uh, on this with a bow, with, and it's very descriptive here, what's not uh, mentioned, which is arrows. He's got a bow, but no arrows. So that's to indicate he's coming in peace. He's not coming to, you know... Uh, he's going to say, look, you know, uh, every nation has to have some kind of defense. But listen, I, I'm not bringing any, any arrows to the, to the picture here or to the party or whatever. He that sat on him had a bow and a crown was given to him. So he's a leader and he went forth conquering and to conquer. Which means that is exactly what Adolf Hitler did early on in the nations that he was uh, dealing with. Letting him know, Let's, we're doing what we're doing, you know, peaceably. We don't want war. We don't want to get into, in, into any war. Even to the point that the British Prime Minister at the time, Chamberlain, said, Well, I've got, a, I've got a letter from Hitler with peace in our times. And not too long right after that, what did they do? They go in and invade Czechoslovakia. It was all in the plans. It was all in the cards, as they say. So this is a, a, a good description of that. Interesting enough that uh, this particular... Horse uh, the one of the the first of the horsemen of the apocalypse, as we as they call him the four horsemen of the apocalypse this white horse, too many people have, at one time thought well that 's talking about jesus it 's not talking about jesus that 's another horse in uh, another time in chapter nineteen actually of revelation, but this is important here because that white horse today when Muslims read this particular part of of the Bible. They look at the white horse and they say, that is the Mahdi. The Mahdi. That is the one that we're waiting for to come. The Mahdi then is the Antichrist. The Islamic quote-unquote Christ. Because they say, he comes with a white horse. Every leader of an Islamic nation, every leader—Gaddafi, Hussein, you know, whoever whoever the leaders were, even even uh, Yasser Arafat, uh, the Palestinian leader, who he's died already—but all of them, all of them had a white horse. All of them in their stable had a white horse just for them, hoping that they would be this Mahdi. Interesting, isn't it? Keep that in mind when you think of where we're going prophetically in all of this. A peace—I'm uh, sorry—a peace treaty is going to be involved. Go back to Daniel chapter nine, if you will. Uh, let me see if we need to come back to Revelation. Hold on a second. Well, we're coming back to the New Testament, but go go back to Daniel chapter nine and verses uh, twenty-six and twenty-seven. Daniel nine twenty-six and twenty-seven, because a peace treaty has to be. Uh, uh, involved here. If you remember in our study of Daniel chapter 9, it says after three score and two weeks, that's 69 weeks of years, uh, shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come, the prince that shall come, is the Antichrist. The prince of the people that shall come shall destroy... Well, let, let, let's say that this is the forerunner to the Antichrist because the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And we said at that time that that was, of course, the Roman emperor... Or or the Roman general that came in and destroyed uh, uh, Jerusalem in 70 A.D. All right, so that is uh, you know a forerunner to Antichrist because again that's going to happen again. And the end thereof shall be with a flood, and unto the end of of the war, desolations are determined. But notice in verse 27 it says, "And he, now speaking of this Antichrist, because now it's pointing to the future." He shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. The one week of years is seven years. And in the midst of the week, He shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. In other words, He has a covenant to allow the Jewish people to to have sacrifices once again. Does it at the beginning of the seven-year period. So the peace treaty is signed. But three and a half years after the peace treaty is signed, right in the middle of this tribulation period, it says, He causes the sacrifice to cease and the oblation to cease, and for the overspreading of abominations, He shall make it desolate, even until the consummation, and that determined shall be poured up upon the desolate. Which, of course, means that the, 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 uh, the temple would be desecrated. Even as Antiochus had desecrated the temple with, with sacrificing a pig on the altar and also setting up a statue of Zeus in the holy place I'll talk about that later uh, if, we, if we look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 3 remember that Paul says here for when they shall say peace and safety then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child and they shall not escape so Paul was saying that this is going to come peace and safety is going to be cried out for there's going to be a covenant made written and, and everybody's going to see it on, on CNN and Fox News and everything else but then, three and a half years later, you know, that's going to be broken. So, when you go to the character that does all of this, you look at the next uh, book of uh, Paul, Second Thessalonians, verses, uh, or chapter 2, verse 3, he says, Let no man deceive you by any means. For that day shall not come, speaking of the day of the Lord, that when the seven-year period begins, that day shall not come except there come a falling away first, an apostasia and that man of sin be revealed. So we can speculate all we want as to who the Antichrist might be today. I would almost have to believe that that Antichrist is walking on the earth today, but we don't know who it is because he's not revealed yet. And again, we can speculate. There's all kinds of world leaders, even some around here, that, you know, we kind of think they might just be, you know, the Antichrist. But let's not play games with speculation. Nonetheless, there will, there will be a falling away first. If there is an apostasia that's taking place, we're already in the middle of that apostasy as far as the church is concerned. So many people have gone away from the truth of the Word of God. So many people have gotten away from the worship, the true worship of, of, of one God and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So many people are just playing around with things as far as uh, uh, spiritually. And 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 so there's there's a lot of people falling away. You can be in a church and be falling away, folks. That's that's the point. You don't have to walk away from a church. You can walk away from this church. We're going to teach the word of God. We're not going to compromise it. But you can walk over, away from this. Go to a place where you feel good and feel ha- happy and all of that, and be apostatizing because you 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 you've fallen away from the truth. You, you have to, we, we, people are falling away from the word of God. They're falling away from from true worship of the Lord, and and. What's that going to bring them? What that that brings them is compromise to the things of the world, and and then they go around celebrating everything that's going on in the world today that that the, the, the Bible says is an abomination. See? So there's a falling away that's taking place already, but then a man of sin will be revealed, the son of perdition, the son of sin and lostness, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. This is different from Antiochus. And I'll explain in just a moment. Because this verse here, verse 4, leads us to the next phrase in verse 36 of our text, where it says, And he shall exalt himself, And magnify himself above every god, and shall speak marvelous things against the god of gods. So pride, as we began, was a pride of saying that this king was going to do only according to his own will. And secondly, pride of self-exaltation and self-magnification. Self-exaltation and magnification. So you see that in verse 36 where it says, And he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak marvelous things or blasphemous things, as it were, against the god of gods. So, as I said, another distinction from Antiochus is that Antichrist will exalt himself to the extent of being worshipped. As a type of Antichrist, Antiochus committed an abomination in the temple by, you know, first of all, sacrificing a pig on the altar, but also by, by uh, placing a statue of Zeus in the holy place. But not taking that place for himself. Now, please understand, that's the distinction. That also shows that he regarded his own gods. What we'll learn about uh, of Antichrist is that he doesn't regard any gods. So Antiochus he regarded his own gods because he put Zeus in the in in the in the temple. So, Antichrist will exalt himself above others in a very hostile and a very antagonistic way. In other words, all people will either subject themselves under his rule as the supreme authority or else suffer grave consequences either imprisonment or death now there's some sense of of, of this kind of uh, attitude in the actions of ISIS today but remember this ISIS is you know they're, they're, they have leadership but pretty much they work as a, as a, as a whole but they're working toward a caliphate. They're working toward establishing a caliphate, which is a, a series or groups of nations that become one under the banner of the Mahdi or the, the, supreme, the supreme ruler of Islam. So understand that, you know, they're, they're doing things similar to this, uh, they're certainly oppressing a lot of people, they're beheading a lot of people, they're killing a lot of people, and, um, uh, but they're, they're working somewhat on their own right now, though the goal is, is a caliphate. We're talking about one person who's going to have that kind of power, you see. Another notable thing that he will do is blaspheme against the God of gods. Which really has to do, you know, some people have translated in their scriptures, you might have in your, in your margins of, of your notes, uh, that it says uh, God, God of gods or, or little God, uh, little g, you know, in other words, uh, not uh, really uh, the God. But, but in fact, in the text, it's the word L which is used for God. So it is the God of gods that he blasphemes against. As I said, the word "marvelous" here literally means blasphemous, but most literally it means monstrous monstrous things said against god, monstrous things now, I don't know about you, but if if you go through the internet sometimes and you and and you listen to people who are i mean these people are completely antagonistic toward toward the Lord and toward the Word and toward God, you know, and they're just, I mean, they just say the most horrendous things, you know. They, they feel like they've got the freedom. They've got no brains, honestly, but they, got, they feel like they've got the freedom to say whatever they want. And they try to act like if they're really, you know, uh, uh, really smart, you know, they, they, they're intellectual or whatever. But uh, it's, all it is is a hatred of God, a hatred of God. I mean, just seething with hatred toward God. So it's blasphemy. When you consider just simply what a blasphemer does, or what a, what blasphemy is, sometimes we think it's just the words that we say. Maybe we use we use certain words and, and 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 use God's name in vain, so to speak. That's blasphemous, but that's not what the biblical definition or the biblical understanding of blasphemy is to be clear now listen carefully because this is so important to be clear to blaspheme the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob to blaspheme the God of creation the God who created the heavens and the earth to blaspheme the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the context of this passage is first of all to deny the edicts and the laws of God It is to deny the edicts and the laws of God. It is to deny them. It is to say they don't exist. Secondly, to blaspheme the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is to deny the ordinances and statutes which God ordained to be followed. And that's, you know, this is not to say it's different from the, the, the laws of God, because when you read the scriptures about the laws, there's so many words. Laws, ordinance, statutes, uh, so on and so forth. okay But ordinances are, are, are made and created by God to be followed by God's people. But to deny them by not, by, by not wanting to follow them, by, by actually going against them, that is blasphemy. Thirdly, to deny God's prophetic word. To deny God's prophetic word is blasphemy. To deny what God has written for our good and for our future, to deny it is blasphemy. And, and, I, and I have to say that in, under that definition... If people today are saying, you know, you guys that believe the Bible or say that you believe the Bible and and say that the rapture is going to happen and that Jesus is going to come and all these things are going to happen in the last days, but you're not working toward trying to make this world better and try to save the planet and all of these things, you know, that's pretty close to blasphemy. Because God is the one that tells us, be looking for the coming of Jesus Christ. That's what we're doing here is trying to do what the Scriptures say and say, Look, I'm trying to point you to what is happening in the world, why it's happening, and why the Scriptures are in line with it, and why the the things that are happening are in line with the Scriptures. Because the Lord said, I'm coming again. And I'm coming in a time when all of these things are going to be happening. So when you deny that, what are you saying about God? In the definition of blasphemy, that's what you're doing. You're blaspheming God. And lastly, to blaspheme the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is to deny the Messiah of Israel, Jesus. To deny the Messiah of Israel. And let me add one more. To blaspheme the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is to deny Israel's right to exist. It is to deny Israel's right to exist. Think about it. What nation has been the, the the center of practically every book of the scriptures? What nation is the one that God has to take the most uh, emphasis of, of, of having to chastise and, and punish to bring them back to him and what nation has he promised to restore in spite of all of that the nation of Israel the right to exist to say that they don't have the right to exist is to blaspheme God because God says they're his people so in that, in that particular context of, of, of understanding the blasphemies here Let's add another layer to this aspect of Antichrist then. Because I want you to consider Antichrist and what it says of him in earlier chapters of this book here. Look at Daniel chapter 7 verse 25. And he shall speak great words against the Most High. And shall wear out the saints of the Most High and, and think to change times and laws. Now stop it for just a moment on this, on this part of the verse. Because first of all he speaks great words against the Most High which is what? Blasphemy. He speaks blasphemous things against God. He shall wear out the saints of the Most High. Antichrist is, is going to be... And by the way, the spirit of Antichrist is here in the, world, in the world already, hasn't it? It's been around a long time. Because John, in his first letter, tells us that the spirit of Antichrist is already here. That was 2,000 years ago. Not the Antichrist himself, but the spirit of Antichrist. And what the spirit of Antichrist does, if it does anything else, is it brings persecution to the believer in Jesus Christ. And persecution, and and I've I've been saying, I'm going to do a study on persecution pretty soon because we're having to realize this is what's happening already in the church. It's been happening for 2,000 years. But what Satan tries to do through persecution is seen right here, to wear out the saints of the Most High to wear the believer out to the point where they become ineffective because they no longer want to be in the battle. That is what persecution does to the church. So that is a a prime definition of of persecution of the church. That he shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and then to think to change times and laws, uh, be careful with that word change. Becomes sometimes a political mantra. We're going to bring change. For what? Well, let's let's bring Islam back into the picture for just a moment. Because wherever Islam goes in the world, and one one of the places though you can see this kind of clearly is when 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 churches have weakened in, in England in in the in, in the United Kingdom. When churches have weakened to the point where churches are closed because no one's going to those, some of those churches anymore and Muslims will buy the churches and then they, make, they turn them into mosques. There are more mosques today in old churches than in any place else there in, in the United Kingdom. And, and uh, the influence of, of the Muslims in, 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 in England has, has become so great. That they're even trying to bring about Sharia law into the nation of England, but they're doing that in a lot of places. They're even trying to do that here. There, there's a there's a Muslim stronghold up in in, in, the, uh, in in Michigan. It's called Dearborn, Michigan. It's a large, large Muslim population. In this one city, they they, want, they just want to have it. I mean, it, it's overrun with the desire for, for Sharia law. To change the times and laws. Why the times? Well, when do we worship? Mostly on, on Sunday, the first day of the week, because of First Corinthians chapter 16. Uh, the Jewish people worship, you know, Friday night when the sun goes down, that's the Sabbath, so they worship primarily on Saturday. But Islam doesn't want that anymore. So they're going to push to change the times and the laws. Why? Because they don't worship on Saturday or Sunday. They worship on Friday. That's when they're going to want everybody to worship. Just something to think about. Something to think about when you see about changing times and laws. And they shall be given into his hand until a time and times and the dividing of time, which is three and a half years. Okay, so we know about that. Turn to Revelation chapter 13, verses 5 through 8. Again, we're we're talking about a a person who's who's great in his blasphemies and is speaking against God. Revelation 13, verses 5 through 8, it says, And there was given unto him a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies. So, this is the Antichrist, the the little horn. Uh, There was given unto him a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies. And power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. How long is that? uh, Three and a half years. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God, to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, and them that dwell in heaven. So everything about God, everything about his kingdom, everything about his servants is to be blasphemed. Be careful when you hear world leaders speak their opinions about what's happening in, the, in, in, in various countries, in particular some countries, over the laws that are changed, and the criticisms that come against those who, st- who take a, a strong biblical stand against something and listen to some of these leaders of these nations talk against them and what they're saying. They try to be very careful about what they say, but they, but they slip out what their intention is. Their intention is to blaspheme whatever they don't agree with. Well, if that's the case, then they're blaspheming against God because our God has told us and given us a standard to live by. And when we we stand on that standard, we're we're going to be challenged. We're going to be attacked. But that's okay. Better to stand on truth than to waver from it. See, these are things that we should be listening to carefully when we watch the news, when we see things, and, and then have an open Bible and say, Wow, look at what's happening. So then it says in verse 7, And it was given unto him to make war with the saints. Oh, that's happening today. A lot of people making war with the saints today. They don't like the fact that we stand on the Word of God. And to overcome them, and power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation. Of the world, and so he comes to the very place now where he finally gets what he wants—worship, worship. The third thing about pride is seen in the last, set, the last part of the sentence of verse 36, and he shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished for that that is de- for that that is determined shall be done. The last part of verse 36 of chapter 11. Pride, Antichrist's success will be short-lived. His success will be short-lived. You see, the Antichrist thinks, the Antichrist thinks that he will be doing his own will. Because that's what it says at the beginning of the the chapter, of of the verse, I mean. The king shall do according to his own will. So he thinks that he will be doing his own will, but in actuality, listen, in actuality, he will be accomplishing God's will. He's going to be accomplishing God's will. He is going to be used by the Lord as his agent of judgment upon the wicked of the earth, as well as being an agent of chastisement upon the nation of Israel. Don't forget Israel. They have to go through the seven-year period of tribulation. That's for them. It's not for the church. Please understand that. So this evil tyrant, this Antichrist, will be very successful until God's time of wrath has been accomplished. The Lord has actually appointed the last days of human history to be a period of tribulation a time when he will pour out his wrath as a punishment for the horrors and the suffering sin uh, for the horrors and the suffering sin that has uh, that has been brought to this earth the scriptures do teach that god will use the antichrist to deceive people so they so they will believe his lies and in so doing they condemn themselves If you believe the lies of the enemy, you are condemning yourselves. How do we know this? Because if you go back to 2 Thessalonians 2 verses 10 through 12, it says, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. So it begins there. They they accept, well let's put it this way, kind of a crude way of looking at it, but I think you all understand the statement. They, they, they're going to drink the Kool-Aid. They're going to drink the Kool-Aid. You know, the, the Kool-Aid laced with the poison. And, and they're, they're going to just accept it as truth. But they will not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. What that means is they reject the truth of the gospel. And they accept everything else. And folks, there's a fine line right now. There's a fine line. Some people accepting all kinds of garbage today. Just because it's politically correct. Folks, politically correctness will not save you. It'll save no one. Only the blood of Jesus Christ. Only the work of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary will save anyone. And accepting the truth of it, and receiving it, and believing it, and trusting in it, and standing upon it. Verse 11 says, and for this cause, notice, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. In other words, if you want to believe it, okay, then you're going to believe it. I've done everything I can to get you to see that that's not the truth. But if, if you're going to believe it, then you're going to believe it. That's, that's a strong delusion. <laughs> that they all might be damned who believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. The truth was put away. And they had the pleasure of unrighteousness. I don't know how many times I've given you Romans chapter 1 as homework. Here goes again. One more time. There's more homework in Romans chapter 1. Romans 1 verses 18 to 23 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress or hold the truth in unrighteousness. They're holding down the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it unto them. So, you see, it's, it's disingenuous, as they say, that for a person to call themselves an atheist. you might say that you don't believe in God, but down deep inside, you know there's a God. For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. There's again another statement about that. Because that, when they knew God... They glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations. And their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. And changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man, and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Now, in the next verse we find that God gives these people up. Now this is a very sad passage. Look at verse 24. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves If you'll jump over to verse 26, it says, For this cause God gave them up. Now, by the way, you can read the verses in between because you'll realize those are the specifics of this. And some of that is is very current today. For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. So you know where that's going. And then in verse 28 it says, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over, notice, I didn't underline it, but I should have, God gave them over to a reprobate mind. Some translations say a debased mind. What is a debased, reprobate mind? It is a rejected mind. Literally it means, the the word in the Greek means rejected and worthless. Can you imagine how far people are going to go away from God to the point that their own minds will be rejected because they are completely worthless. They've been given over to do those things which are not fitting. To do the things that are not fitting. The things that don't, just don't fit. That aren't right. That's happening today, isn't it? How sad. And the question is, and we're going to close with this idea and this thought here. Why? Why? Why would God, who is love, do such a thing? Why would He give them over? Don't forget that He has done everything to point people to the cross of Jesus Christ. So why does He do such a thing? Giving them over to these things. Because people do not believe the truth about Jesus Christ and his holy word, but they would rather have pleasure in unrighteousness and wickedness. In addition, listen, God is just. We have a just God, a righteous God, dwelling in perfect righteousness as well as in perfect love. His justice must be executed against all unrighteousness and wickedness. If it isn't, then He's not God. Because He is a just and righteous God, then He must execute against wickedness and unrighteousness. So remember this. Wickedness will get worse and worse and worse and worse. Because He is the man of sin, because He is the son of perdition. The promotion of sin will be Antichrist's chief goal. The promotion of sin is his chief goal. He will gratify lust and glorify sin. And by the way, he will allow for the celebration of abominable works and acts in the guise of loving relationships. To the world, he will appear as the personification of their own deities. In other words, he will be like the Messiah for the Jews. He'll be the Mahdi for the Muslims. He'll be the Krishna for the Hindus. He'll be a Christ for apostate Christendom. He'll be the great ideal for the humanists. He will be hailed by a war-weary, panic-plagued world until, until the indignation and the wrath is accomplished. When the end of that seven year period is done, who will break through the clouds? Who will come with ten thousands of His saints? Who will come and break open the gate of the eastern wall of Jerusalem? Who will go in with His saints? And who will sit on the throne of David? but Jesus, the Messiah. I want to leave you with some encouragement as well as a challenge. In 1 Thessalonians 5 verses 6 through 10 it says, Therefore let us not sleep as do others. Let's not be asleep. Let's not be slumbering spiritually, folks. But let us watch and be sober. I've got to tell you, I uh, honestly, I, I believe, and I don't say this because of me, uh, last thing I'm thinking, <laughs> but I believe that the situation in this world is so critical that this study in Daniel or any study in any prophetic book that we're doing, we, we, should, have, we should have standing room only here. We should be that interested in what's happening in this world. So I'm appreciative of you being here. But we need to watch and we need to be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. That says a whole lot about night, doesn't it? But let us who are of the day be sober putting on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not appointed us to wrath but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him. I want to encourage you to see the importance of standing in the Word of God, following, reading, studying, staying, staying up with what's going on. I don't know what the Lord has in store. Well, I, I, I kind of know what the Lord has in store after Daniel. Uh, I'm not going to tell you because I want it to be a surprise. <laughs> A few things that we're going to do, uh, but, it's, it, but it's going to stay pretty much in line with pro- prophecy. Yet, it's also going to be part of our, our, our plan to go through, this, through all of the scriptures. Because all we have left, actually, uh, over the last few years, all we have really left in, in teaching is the book of Ezekiel. And that's, that's another critical book. But there's a few books that we need to do before Ezekiel. So we're going to do that first. Oh, by the way, we need to finish Daniel, so that's the first thing we've got to do, is to finish Daniel. When we finish Daniel, then we'll, we'll, we'll move on to these other things. But I want, to stay, I want to stay focused on prophetic themes because of the times in which we live. Even in the, in the book of John, as we're studying that on Sunday mornings and Saturday, Saturday nights, even then, we're going to see time and again some, some prophetic connections to the times in which we live. But that study and and what we're doing on Sundays, you know, is is to continue to keep the gospel afresh and open to people so that people will come to know Jesus Christ. Because that's still what God's called us to do. But we need to also be ready and we need to be understanding of the times in which we live. I want us to be like the sons of Issachar. The sons of Issachar, the scripture says, tells us that they, they, they understood the times. They knew the signs of the times. So we need to do the same. We need to be Bereans, sons of Issachar. We need to be a whole lot of things. And we need to be children of the day, stay in the light and keep loving the Lord and keep serving the Lord until He comes. Amen? All right. Let's all stand. I need you guys to stand and I need to sit down, but I'm not going to sit down now. We'll sit down in a moment. And let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us the time to go through this one verse. I know that... uh, there's there's a few verses that we're going to have to deal with, but uh, it's important that we that we not miss some of these uh, points, Lord God, as we as we're looking to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, because that's what we're looking for more than anything else is Jesus coming. But we also have to be prepared, and we need to be encouraged, Lord, by Your Word, because it continues to teach us that Your Word is is accurate, it's reliable, and uh, it's something that we need to always. Uh, a study and always keep before us. And, uh, my goodness. Uh, so, Lord, I, uh, I just pray, Father, you just continue to open your word to our hearts. And, and uh, Lord, where there's areas in our lives that we just need to bring to you, Father, just receive them tonight. Receive them before you. Because we want to be clean, pure before you. We want our eyes pure. We want our hearts pure. We want everything about us, Lord God, right before you. We thank you for all that you provide for us, Lord. And all that you are, all that we have, we're thankful to to have because of you. And so we bless you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen, amen.